0: Welcome to the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan, and this podcast is all about helping men to become unstuck in their lives and inspire and encourage them to move forward towards a life of strength, confidence, and inner fulfillment. So without further ado, here is today's episode. I hope you enjoy it hello and welcome to episode number 28 of the modern warrior podcast today i am joined by mike armiger mike how are you doing this fine thursday
1: i'm well thank you gav it's good to be with you thank you for having me
0: likewise my man it's an absolute pleasure we've been uh, trying to get this episode uh, recorded and have this meeting for quite a while now so i've been looking forward to it so mike who are you and what are you all about? Tell the people of this podcast um, who you are and what you're all about. It's
1: really interesting, isn't it? Because when we ask people who they are, normally they go straight into their job. And, uh, and that's essentially what I'm here to talk about. But um, it's interesting because who I am is tied up with my job completely. So who I am in terms of me away from my roles would be that I'm somebody who's really interested in why people um, behave in the way they do off the back of their experiences, um how we prevent people from you know experiencing those things, what we can do to support people um, in their reactions, um, and trying to make the world a little bit of a different place um, and hopefully a better one in that as well. Um, what I do professionally, um, linked to that, is that I work across multiple different areas of sort of health education and sport. So I predominantly work in the area of trauma um, and supporting people um, it, with uh suicidal thoughts quite a lot. So I work with training health professionals in that area as well as working on the front line in the National Health Service on, on those issues. Then I work with professional athletes um, who um, as part of the athlete mental health project who might be experiencing emotional distress or in need of some specific support in those areas and then i also work within education environments as well um, and support um a lot of children who have a lot of complex experiences that have then meant that they've um that they've really struggled to engage in the education system and so we look at how you know we can shape provisions and, and support around that so yeah lots of random stuff um that all sort of links together in this weird way that you kind of see the same issue but from multiple different viewpoints um, so it's really interesting in that sense um but I'm not somebody if i'm being honest who likes to conform to systems I like to push back quite a lot and uh, try to look at ways of doing things differently which I'm sure uh, many people who are listening to this will automatically hear me say that I work in the health service and have an instant reaction because you know they've they've experienced um something whether it be positive or whether it be not so positive sadly um so that for me interests me because it means that we put people's voices and experiences front and center. Of, of what we're doing so that was a long introduction wasn't
0: it yeah that's brilliant though yeah that sounds quite refreshing that you're almost going against the status quo
1: um, yeah I'd say so I think I think I I think one of the things that you know we all do don't we to these roles is we all bring our own experiences um you know when and my own lived experience is important to me however I'm also flexible in that that I can appreciate them my experiences and everybody else's um but what I am insistent upon is that when we're talking about systems when we're talking about how we should do something as professionals, if we don't have those people who've experienced the system at the table, then it makes no sense to me. Um so, you know, I'm very much about, you know, not calling people patients and calling them people, which is, you know, not that radical, um, and, and trying to humanize the system where we can. Um and suggest that you know, very radical point that not absolutely everybody needs a course of CBT or lots of different therapies in order to um, you know, to move forward and, and with their experiences, that maybe we need you know therapeutic communities instead, um, and many different types of things that people find therapeutic rather than you know having to go to a specific place, at a specific time with a specific person mm-hmm. to, to to have those therapeutic experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. The, the the word that stuck out there was community, and something that's been massively lacking over the last year. And you feel that that's perhaps had a ripple effect on to, uh, yeah, had a negative effect on, on people's mental health, I'm sure. Uh, the lack of community, lack of interaction, lack of socializing and uh, being in that community in itself is is quite, uh, yeah, it can replenish people's minds and uh, bring some positivity into their lives again. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you're kind of bringing, bringing one and the other and just merging the other as such, isn't it? You've got the, individual with the community and they feel part of something again i think people over the last year have been disconnected or felt disconnected from people in the society so how, how have yeah, your no, how is your totally, uh,
1: yeah go ahead no i was going to say sorry to interrupt I, I totally agree and i think one of the things that we talk about with community is that so you know there are lots of people who i understand don't have necessarily very good relationships with family um, or who are estranged um, from lots of different, you know, standard um, units that we would call them. And so, you know, for me, community is about um, sports clubs. It's about interests, It's about the people that we choose to have in our lives or the people that we could meet and that it could, who could influence us. So, you know, for me, this year has been problematic. It's been really difficult for a lot of people. What's also really interesting though, is that when we actually look at the data coming back, um, actually in the UK, we haven't seen an increase in suicide. We haven't seen an increase in um, uh, people accessing certain services in certain areas. Now that's not to say that people aren't really finding it difficult. I want to make that clear. But what it is to say is that there's almost been a merging of worlds. So there are people who were struggling pre-pandemic, who found it really tough and who were maybe isolating themselves or find it difficult to engage in the world. And many people that I've spoken to have said that actually they've managed to cope because they were already existing in some of those ways anyway. Um, and actually, what they feel is that people have almost stepped into their world, and so they're hoping that there's going to be an increased level of empathy for what it's like for those people day to day. But of course, now we have that thing of you know we're re-entering um, different areas of life again, um, and so that brings its own pressures with it. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. It, we need community, and it's protective for a lot of people. But I think we need to think really carefully about the fact that we can't just expect people to always reach out and we hear this phrase all the time don't we in mental health services you need to reach out you need to reach out well if we're going to do that we need to give people the language because people don't have the words very often Um, people don't know where all of those things are in one place it's too overwhelming for them there's things like you know um, technological poverty where people don't have access to the internet or only have a certain amount of data on their phone and all of those things so you know we need to make it much easier for people which means that people like me need to not you know be based in hospital when things get you know too too difficult for people we need much more community resources so that people can access things in the places that they feel comfortable in the places that they know so that you know i could talk about this all day but that's just the way that i think if we were really going to emerge from this in a, in a much better way mm-hmm. and a much more cohesive way then that would be what i would be that i would be preferring
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's that's really important and it's when you uh, when you talk about the barriers, perhaps that that holds people back in terms of reaching out, uh, you talk about the technology or just the um, yeah their immediate environment. But do you feel as well that they hold themselves back from reaching out, especially young men? You know, the their pride or their ego gets in the way and asking for help or reaching out is is them you know given into weakness or you know not being very manly, you should be able to deal with your own problems and 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 sort out yourself so I find that that's quite prevalent in a lot of men uh, they're just holding themselves back in terms of um reaching out and ultimately you know they they stay stuck in their in their misery in their in their difficult situation.
1: I think that's a really good point um I think we've made a lot of progress um culturally um I think more people are aware of the conversation for sure pro One of the problems that i 'd highlight is that I think you 're right for sure I think there are some certain barriers that we have in our own minds and our own our own thinking and our own influences and a lot of a lot of those are cultural i think you know depending on who we 've been brought up by and um, what messages we were told and um, when we were younger um, what we 've reinforced and and what we choose to believe so there 's no doubt about that. But one of the things that I think we often don't talk about when we talk about elements of reaching out and what those barriers might be is that one of the problems with increased mental health awareness has been that a lot of people have, you know, you walk around um, public health messaging or schools and all of those things, and the posters that you see are full of lists of, you know, mental health symptoms. So this is what depression looks like. This is what anxiety looks like. And the problem is that we become fascinated by labels. And so what happens is that the conversation is completely dominated by, you know, actually, well, depression looks like this. Anxiety looks like this. But there are many men who might be going, well, I feel like I've got low mood and I'm struggling with this. But I don't feel that I necessarily have that label, or I don't prescribe to that label. So what's the alternative? And the problem is, is that we're not then going. Well, you know, you can have you can, you can have low mood without being depressed. You can have anxiousness without having anxiety. You know, but you still need some form of support. You know, and, and these are things that you can engage in. So I think we sometimes prevent people from engaging because of the way that we frame the conversation. If that makes sense. But I think you're right. We we need a lot more work on what. You know, leading up to adulthood looks like, and I think the next generation coming through now um, are completely different in many aspects in terms of you know masculinity and mental health, and so they think a little bit differently, I think, um, mm-hmm. because they've had those experiences. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens in the next ten to fifteen years in terms of how minds change, how culture changes, services, all of those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you? Obviously, you come from a an educational background as well. Do you see those grassroots developing in terms of the the young people you speak to today, compared to the the older people you speak to?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I do. I do see a change. Um, I think again, the problem is is that I think um, we've almost become too aware and obsessed in in places with. You know trying to um identify ourselves as under a certain label um, and you know what we need to think about is that actually you know you can be distressed without being ill it's perfectly understandable people's distress often when you ask what's happened to you um you know i meet people all the time for whom they've experienced so many difficult events and so many different things that they might tick multiple different diagnostic criteria but essentially they are the way that they are at that moment in time in terms of their behaviors and thoughts and adaptations because of what they've experienced and so i think w- one of the things that young people are at risk of with the way that things currently stand is that they are at risk of always trying to seek that label instead of understanding the fluidity and understanding that you know we don't need always to go down that route of understanding ourselves through that i'm not anti label i want to make that clear some people understand you know their diagnosis and that helps them understand themselves and that's great but i'm pro choice I believe that people should have a choice over how they understand themselves and what narrative they form. Um, and I think, we young people, we need to make that choice really clear. So, in schools now, you know, one of the things that I'm talking about all the time, and it's one thing that <laughs> drives me mad. So you might, you might get that. Um, is I get very angry when I talk about it. And it's so when you're asked how you are, you know, in schools, um, our emotional literacy resources and one of the things that I remember using when I when I was working in education um, when I was younger. Is that you were told? You know how are you feeling? You give one answer, and then you go, "Okay, well, it's okay to feel that. Move on, move on. Um, you know, and I'll help you with your anger." So what we have are a lot of young men who will say, "Well, I'm very angry," and the problem is is that nobody ever says to them, "Well, of course, it's scientifically impossible for you to only feel one emotion. So you're likely to feel multiple. So okay, so you've told me you're angry. What else are you?" Because Sadness and anger often coexist, isn't it? I know a lot of young men who are extremely sad, but are also very equally angry. But it's more uncomfortable for them to talk about their sadness. So they'll just talk about their anger. But nobody's ever curious and stops and asks them. So I'm always saying to you know education staff, when we ask people how they are and you know, when we do emotional literacy work with them, you know, when they give us an answer, we say, okay, what else? And understanding that we experience multiple things at the same time might help us start to be able to sit with those feelings to be curious about them rather than go okay i'm feeling anger and i'm always feeling anger therefore i'm inherently an angry person you know i'm sure you see those people all the time who have never stopped to contemplate or have never been asked about why they're feeling those things in the way that they are yeah and as as somebody who grew up in a family that fostered you know both of my parents were foster carers um you know, I want to be clear. I wasn't foster myself, but the children I lived with were. Um, I saw this all the time. You know, they were labeled as angry when you know these people had just been removed from their parents. They were they were they were grieving, but nobody ever stopped to ask them about their grief. They were only ever asked about their anger. Mm-hmm. So you know, just very and it's not simple when we it's not difficult when we break it down, is it? You know, these are really simple things that if we just understood a lot more and we started to do, then we could actually really influence a generation in a different way.
0: Yeah, that's powerful, man. It's and it's something I can relate to as well because uh, when you talk about labels and yeah, you have to feel a certain way to be anxious or feel a certain way to be depressed. I can tell you for a fact that I've gone through anxiety and depression. Anxiety perhaps for a long period of my life. Um, depression in my twenties, especially um, after you know uh, when I was eighteen, I was involved in a in a serious car accident where a lady died in the scene. And yeah, because I wasn't taking those boxes in terms of those labels, you know, I was still getting up every morning. I was still going to college. I was still living uh, a normal life in quotation marks, but deep within, you know, I was carrying a lot of pain and trauma and guilt with me for years. It was almost Ten years later, before I reached out and started speaking to somebody about it, maybe it took me 10 years to process that that instant. But over that 10-year period, I was trying to live a normal life. I was in college, had my friends. But also along with that, there was a lot of escapisms attached to my lifestyle, such as alcohol, porn. Porn became an addiction. Alcohol became a crutch in terms of... Um, when I went drinking, it was a very aggressive approach when I went drinking, I was almost like a self-destruction mode when it came to drinking. I just, uh, I went out and I didn't, I didn't care what happened to me or how drunk I got. I just, I'm just i just gonna get absolutely hammered tonight. And I, I just, there was a carelessness with it, um, which again was uh, perhaps a lot of anger and, and sadness and depression, you know, attached to that. So. Uh, but as I said, because I wasn't taking the labels, I thought yeah, I'm okay. You know, I'm I'm fine. I'm 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 getting up every morning. I'm, I'm doing my duties. But you know, in reflection, I was carrying a lot of pain, and it was only then when I moved away from the porn and the the drinking that it all came back and hit me really hard. To the point where uh, I started speaking to a counselor about it, and that's when my recovery began. But uh, and it's interesting because uh, yeah, even as a kid. I would have had a lot of anger, perhaps sadness as well. I wouldn't have had maybe the best connection with my dad. And, uh, you know, from, you know, I'm only discovering these over the last few months, you know, years of my life carrying this with me and understanding that after the age of three, my family moved away from my aunties and my grandmother who were next door to me in those three years of my life. So there was almost a breakup of, of a family there at the age of three. And, again, that's quite a traumatic experience that I never properly understood or processed either, and that, of course, had a ripple effect onto my behaviours and, and my life uh, f- following that and uh, always maybe seeking that connection or that love or that attention. Again, maybe in all the wrong areas, porn, women, um, you know, falling into different groups, gangs, friends, just trying to establish some sort of connection and not knowing that there was something I was missing in my life. And again, that's where a lot of the anxiety was uh, that that's where a lot of anxiety was involved in that from that instant at the age of three, when we moved away. And as I said, because I wasn't taking those boxes or those labels weren't attached to my, uh, my behaviors or my life. I thought oh, I'm, I'm normal. I'm okay. I'm just, you know i'm just doing this because i'm a teenager i'm just behaving this way because i'm rebellious i'm just trying to become a man i'm uh trying to be one of the lads so yeah that's certainly something that's very relatable to me and i'm I'm sure to a lot of guys listening to this today
1: i think you articulate it i mean incredibly powerfully and incredibly courageously and, and I think that there are, you know, what you should understand, Gab, is that there are many people who can be that reflective because it's painful and it's difficult as as you well know. And and I think one of the one of the things that often happen is that people think that, you know, well, you know, it that they would they would possibly see your case as quite maybe extreme in some areas to say, oh, you know, well he's engaged in all of those different areas. But what people don't understand is that it's very easy to fall into. It doesn't, it doesn't take you that much effort. Um, you know, you don't always necessarily have to seek those things out purposely. A lot of those things just arrive on your doorstep and, you know, they're everywhere. And, you know, if you're feeling vulnerable, you feel that you need to belong somewhere. Those are the things that you just naturally gravitate to as well. So I, I really think that we need to move away from this mindset that people say, well, you know, where." Uh, Well, you know, that story there, for example, well, you know, I haven't done those things, therefore, you know, I'm doing all right. I think we naturally avoid things, don't we? We're naturally very avoidant of pain. You know, it's not uh, an easy thing. And when we think about, you know, grief, you know, we know that it's love and grief, you know, they're both the same thing. You know, it's the price we pay for love and it's difficult to accept that. So I think for me that one of the the aspects that you raise very powerfully and other people should think about is that, These pennies don't always drop straight away. Those penny drop moments happen, you know, much further down and down the line. I remember sitting one day, and this was not too long ago. This is, you know, this is about 15, 16 years later um, after the event had happened. And I was sat down, you know, with somebody and we were discussing things in a professional forum. And and I was in a role of supporting them. And I remember it occurred to me when I was talking to them about post-traumatic stress reaction. And I remember speaking to them and going... The penny just dropped in my mind and I went, oh, my gosh, this too happened to me when I was nine. And I'd never, ever, ever thought of it to be traumatic because when it's part of your normalized and, and everyday experience, you know, it's only when you look back, you know, as an elder and sort of say, um, oh, gosh, you know, that actually now i got those different eyes on it. That, that, that did happen in that way and that wasn't okay that that happened. And so I, th- I think those penny drop moments don't happen when we're young. And so the problem is, is that when people are avoidant of pain, you can't allow them to make the links there and then because they won't see it necessarily and you can help them and you can try, they won't see it. But what we need are people in spaces that when they have those penny drop moments that we're able to go, okay, you know, let's help, let's see what we can do. And like you've just done, you've been able to make the links between you know what happened to you when you were younger and all of those things and how you were then feeling as a result of those and for me you know i've done lots of different therapies and i've done lots of different experiences but what i find really useful is having therapeutic conversations and conversations with lots of different people and um, whether it be philosophical stuff whether it be you know uh, psychological stuff whether it just be made down the pub talking about you know something in particular and i think there's a real you know there's a real uh, judgment made that men don't want these conversations well actually i've never met a bloke who doesn't they they might not necessarily want to have them at the right at that time or about themselves but they do want deep conversations they do they just they just don't know how to ask for them sometimes and they just presume that it's embarrassing to do so mm. but yeah I'm seeing with more of the generation coming through now is that they want to talk about those those things that you know that are deep. There's a phrase I often use called craving depth and it's something that I feel quite often you know I I can maybe go away from a conversation and go I don't really feel like I was authentic in that and I don't feel like we talked about anything that that initiates any element of depth it was just all very sort of surface level and, and that's fine That's not a problem, that's for some people, but I need something more than that. And I think a lot of people do. I don't know what you think, but that's certainly what I feel weekly.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love those kind of conversations. It's uh, Yeah, it it can bring up a lot of um, areas that have not been addressed or you're not willing to address. And when you're having that conversation with someone else who's perhaps gone through a similar situation and is opening, opening and willingly to, uh, express their feelings and their emotions about certain events. It's, it is it ex- is ex- extremely refreshing. And uh, I do have those conversations with... There are several friends that I will have deep conversations with, but there are other friends that, you know, will uh, talk about football, talk about Netflix, talk about the girls, you know. So uh, awesome. um, there is a, there's a hesitancy in terms of going back and uh, perhaps talking about some of those deeper issues because as you mentioned there's a there's a pain there hey i don't want to talk about that i want to go out and enjoy myself i want to have a bit of fun here um well why is it that you need to go out and get drunk every saturday night and snort white powder up your nose like is that really you enjoying your life or is that you escaping some sort of pain or uh, unwilling to address some sort of issue within so I think there's a lot of that going on, uh, escapisms. And again, it's something I can relate to because that was my life for a long period of time. Um, I wouldn't discuss that incident with anybody. And a big reason for that too, and you know, this is perhaps something you can relate to as well in your work is that I didn't speak about that incident because I felt that nobody's gonna, nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to understand this experience. Nobody's going to understand me or the level of, pain or trauma that i'm going through so i i i parked it more for their sake than for my own sake you know and uh so that i couldn't find anyone to relate to or anyone to uh to help me understand what i was struggling to understand if you know what i mean so is that something that you find is is um is quite difficult for people to to open up because it's like well who are you you haven't gone through the the same experiences i've gone through you're not going to get it how can i relate to you so how do you break that barrier
1: totally i totally find that and um you know people always raise their eyebrows when i you know might maybe say you know well cuz that that sometimes gets leveled at me in a very blunt way you know actually what well, what what do you know you've not experienced this Um, and there are lots of things I haven't experienced and you know I always say to people you know I have my own lived experience of certain things and people are always quite surprised at that which I find quite quite disturbing not because they said it but just that their expectation is is that I don't have any experience in those things because they feel that we're so disconnected from them and it's not a judgment I make about them I just feel really sad that they would feel that I wouldn't bring my own experience to the table because I'm in a professional capacity or something. So I think we need to do a lot better at humanizing that relationship. Um, I think you're right. People people find it very difficult. And one of the things that I often will talk about is that I've never met one person who's experienced the same circumstance as maybe a hundred others who I might have met in exactly the same way. So I know people who have lived through exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, but have completely different viewpoints on it and have completely different, you know, ways, even sometimes they blame different people, Um, they find reason in different areas, um, and meaning, some people react in one way, you know, which is very maybe, um, you know, avoidant, other people um, are already affected immediately, so it it really is different, and I think that's the problem, is that we don't explain that enough, Um, and, you know, when I was listening to you then, I thought, well, who in their right mind would not see that you were not going to be affected by that. You know, of course that event will be affecting. Of course it would. But but what we realise is that that natural inclination and that thinking isn't necessarily always there with people, you know, because what they see is, well, one person's been maybe more affected than the other. And, you know, we can talk about, right, or wrong and morality on all those things. But one of the things that I fundamentally come back to is that, you know, we don't ever, you know, even if you witness something traumatic, you don't witness it, you experience it because you know you can react in a very similar way if you're stood on the side of the road watching that happen than you can if you're absolutely in it your brain and body reacts in fundamentally similar ways so i really really think that one of the things we have to merge to in the way that we support people with their experiences is understanding the way that it impacts them both physically and and cognitive and emotionally um socially too so i think that we need to do a lot better job at communicating that. I think we need to be much more flexible in how we do things. Um, I, for instance, will meet a lot of people who are holding a lot of tension in their bodies um and who are very, very hyperactive a lot of the time because they're constantly wired to threat and responding and all of those things. Um and one of the, one of the things that you know will not work for them is sitting down in the room and having to sit on their impulse and remain still for 45 minutes. It's just not going to happen. So you know, the best thing that I find very useful a lot of the time is just walking and talking. Um, I find that I get a lot better engagement from that. I find that people are a lot more relaxed, um, and you know nature itself has multiple benefits. So why wouldn't you utilize it? Um, I mean, you know I'm Welsh. I can't really say that you know, the weather is always great for walking and talking, but I think that I think that those flexible approaches don't don't need much. And they're very simple things that are principles that we can all apply. And the interesting thing is during COVID, we've been having to do it all the time. So if we now, you know, that's one of the things that I think we really need to keep, you know, moving away from this now is well, we can surely still keep that flexibility in the system, can't we? And allow those people to engage in that forum if that's what they're used to, if that's normal for them. So I think I think you're right. There are there are a lot of barriers between, you know, me and you. But if I'm not communicating, you know that I've been on both sides of that table and I understand and I'm not doing something to make you feel at ease or, you know, actually articulate really, really clearly. You know, I'd imagine you are probably feeling quite nervous about engaging in this. You know, how should we do this and what are the things that you need me to think about before we even start talking about anything? And, you know, just those conversations sometimes I find the most basic ones are the most useful. You know, instead of me, you know, opening up a book and going, crossing my legs, you lying on the couch, which is the typical film experience of therapy and going, okay, so tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. Because that's not the reality. It just doesn't happen that way. So, you know, I think that actually moving away from that view of therapy and thinking about more therapeutic things, I found being outside, I found conversations, I found um, a lot more body-based work to be much more therapeutic than I did. Mm -hmm. talking about things I did talk about them I did in different forums but I certainly didn't go okay I need to reframe my thoughts and think about these in a positive way because there wasn't really much positivity to take from them I mean like you know the way I thought about them was the way I thought about them somebody can question my narrative for sure and that was useful but I'm not really sure you know reframing the way I thought about it was necessarily going to be useful if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah that's great because you're like in those situations you're that's the, that's the difference between the patient or seeing the patient as a patient and seeing the patient as a, as a human and humanizing the, the patient or the individual. I, I keep calling them patients, but yeah. Humanizing the <laughs> no,
1: individual, it, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, totally. And the thing is, is that we, yeah. we want patients, you know, we talk about patients because it's been drilled into us, Because not because, you know, we want to other them, but because we feel a strong duty of care to them. Mm -hmm. you know so i totally get why people you know want that because it is all about the patients and how we support them Mm -hmm. but i'm like you know in this in this area it's people with problems rather than patients with symptoms so we need to stop you know box them in that way so no i i continue to drop it in every now and again and totally forget don't worry yeah
0: yeah but yeah but there's a separation there isn't it between you and the and the other individual when you label them as a patient so but uh, you're humanizing them by uh, taking into consideration their own unique characteristics in terms of, as you mentioned, this person, it's not going to work for them to sit down in, a, in an office or in a, in a room and to talk about their issues. What's going to work best for them is take them outside, go for a walk, do a bit of exercising, and communicate in that way. So that's, that's a really important approach, I feel, to get more information from the client and, and also to enable them to open up about the the trauma or the pain they're going through and yes that's amazing man and you know i've got a lot of dads who i work with as well and parents so and i'm a parent myself i've got two kids so the way the world is going with a lot of pressure coming from again external sources such as social media such as uh, peer groups such as um news and and everything else a lot of lot of fear based which is coming at us 24 7 now and i feel that there is a rise in anxiety with young people because of this because of the pressures of uh, putting on a certain persona or being a certain person on social media you know that you've got the selfies you've got the you've got to look this way you've got to act this way in order to be accepted in order to be validated in order to get likes to get love to get connection all these kind of things <laughs> so how do you see that going over the next 10 years i mean I, I think it's uh as it stands at the moment it is a it's it's a it's a dark road for a lot of young people and teenagers um the way that they interpret their their uh, their worth and and their own validation. So, yeah.
1: It's uh, no, I think you're spot on. And it's when you throw things like, you know, they got to navigate climate change and everything else into the mix as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, th- think about the way that the world works off the back of, the- I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to be a young person now. I think it's really, really tough. I think, I think you're right. And I think analyzing our own relationship with social media can really help us learn what we should be teaching our children. I mean, I, I went through a stage of just, when I felt something, reaching for my phone and then tweeting about it or put a status on, you know, and so it was a form of projection. It was just me sort of going, oh, okay, I've done that now. I feel better. I mean, when, when you stop and break that down, that's really weird, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To, to feel pacified by your phone. And, and of course, when we break it down even more, it's it's really quite scary because what it means is, is that you know, I'm placing my feelings into a big area. I'm not having a discussion about them or, you know, having those conversations. I'm putting them in a place where, you know, I'm open to multiple different reactions. Um, And don't get me wrong, there are, you know, I see some really brilliant uses of social media, like, you know, at Christmas time, for instance, there's that um, hashtag join in, which I tell loads of people who I know are going to maybe be on their own at Christmas to, to join in if they've got Twitter and all of those things. Brilliant, you meet lovely people who are genuine in, in their projections on social media. But you're right. I think one of the biggest problems we have with a lot of young people is that they are living in an age of comparison. And comparison is is really difficult. Um, because you are constantly trying to hold yourself up to a level of perfection that doesn't actually realistically exist. And the problem is, is that you know, when you tell them it doesn't real- realistically exist, you know, they push back naturally, you know, being being young people. Um But they see everywhere, they see all around them. And we've almost standardized childhood. You know, you've got to to be a certain way, you've got to behave a certain way, you know, you've got to have these certain products um, in, in order to fit in. And that's not something I think we thought about when social media started. It's just been an unintended consequence. And so one thing I'm always talking about with people is, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to, you know, be able to carve out individual spaces when i go through the apps on my phone my apps have actually different emotional functions on facebook which i don't really really like if i'm being honest i have multiple issues with it um, on facebook it's more about just seeing how other people are doing um you know either from a nosy angle or from a curious angle of you know oh i wonder how they did get on on holiday um and you know I, I find myself sometimes thinking oh i wonder how they're doing you know because i know that they're away at the moment so it is quite useful in that sense but obviously the news and information aspect is just really problematic. Twitter, it took me a long time to navigate. I really love it because I am very fortunate that I use it to connect with people on certain issues. But I also I have no problem with curating my feed. I just don't do elements of, you know, if there's somebody that's constantly going at something, I'm like, that's not what I need. And I'm really good at curating my feed. But we don't teach those skills actively. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, everybody was doing in... in um, in the pandemic when we were talking with young people we were saying you know stay away from social media stay away from social media well of course they're not going to stay away from social media in a time where they're isolated from everybody that's just madness so you know instead it became about you know this is how you mute certain words and this is how you mute those things now if you're muting something like covid then that's then that's generally a good thing for people i think in some ways to be able to cope and have some headspace but then you get into the interesting conversation of filtering your news and your surroundings and reality, don't you? So it's. I think we need a really big conversation on how we use it. I think we need much more controls over it for young people, certainly. I certainly don't think we should be having um, elements of anonymous accounts. Um, you don't have to put your name, you know. I, I think, on social media accounts, but you should be able to have some accountability if you're going to use those spaces. Um, there are loads of different things, but for young people to navigate that right now, as well as have to go into school day to day and try and find their place in the world, is is really rough. Um and when I think back to you know when I was in school, I mean, you probably had the same gav that if you had an issue with somebody, you know, if they wanted to get hold of you, they'd have to ring your house phone, get through your parents, whoever you lived with, um, and then be brave enough to have a pop at you over the landline. Um, which it just didn't happen very much at all, um you know nowadays it's it's instant, so those barriers don't exist, so those protections therefore don't exist either. so we've got to think really carefully about how we do that and in terms of mental health, there's just a big access to information you know you can google i the first question that I normally ask people and I know it sounds terrible when somebody comes in to see me um is have you googled this? That's just a question I have to ask now because. You know, in their minds, they've got X, Y, and Z, and it's because they've they've looked it up on Google, and Google has told them that. And you know, I'm like, you haven't even told me your name yet. Hang on, let's let's rewind and you know take a bit of a more sensible approach. But the problem with information being everywhere is it's useful for one extent, but it also means that we don't think critically about things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to be really careful about how we shape the world for our young people in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and. Uh, we, we're talking about young people, but for sure it can affect people of all ages and um, certainly affect me and you just as much as anyone else if, if we're not uh, aware of it. And do you find that there is a, over the last year especially, and again, I work with a lot of guys who do struggle with this in terms of that there has been certain uh, impulses that they veered towards, because they were in a vulnerable place um, now i'm talking about impulses in terms of social media in terms of gaming in terms of alcohol drug use porn and these impulses became all too consuming and have now become addictive or they're they're caught in that addiction i don't know if if uh, if you like the term addiction but uh that that they're off they're in a way they're their lives and their behaviours are controlled by by these devices or these, uh, yeah, these impulses or their impulsive behaviours. So do you see a rise in that over the last year or what's been your experience? Yeah,
1: yeah, no, you're right. I think I think quite a lot. And I think, you know, your, your wording is good because what you've, you've not done is call people addicts, you know, and imply that that's just – inherently who they are and that there's somehow genetically dispositioned to be addicts, which we know isn't true. Um, But, you know, their behaviours are addictive and there's no no getting away from that. I think you're right. I think one of the things that I really wish we taught people is, you know, like I said about, you know, using the phone to pacify yourself, is to be able to sit with things a little bit longer. So just before you do that, just take 10 minutes because actually that feeling may shift. Or you might think differently in ten minutes, um, and you know that goes to relationships with food. You know, I I I don't talk by by the way as somebody who's like virtuous or like unique in this aspect and do everything right all the time. I definitely don't. But I think one thing that I've learned is that one of the difficult things about confront, confronting those behaviours is it means that you have to feel things physically and emotionally. And people have a very short tolerance sometimes for those things because they're so overwhelmingly painful. Like we mentioned earlier, that it means that actually ten minutes of sitting with that just seems unbearable. Um, and so it means that in the meantime, we've got to do something else in order to stop us from feeling that food, you know, porn, drugs, whatever it might be. So you're right. I think if we were able to teach people the skill at, at a lot younger age of saying, okay, so you feel that, let's just be curious, let's just pause, let's just see how it goes in the next five or ten minutes, and then let's let's act later. Um, it's such an important skill. I, I literally, you know, and it sounds really stupid, but um and I'm aware it also sounds simplistic. I'm not saying it's this simplistic at all, but if I've had a really difficult day um and I've got you know 10 people back to back that I'm seeing, which is, you know, on average quite quite regular, I've just come out of a really intense hour with somebody and I've got to go into another one. By five or six, I'm quite tired. You know, I just am, um, you know, emotionally and physically. One thing I have to do, absolutely have to, not only have a drink, is be able to go in, have a bit of a stretch and just be able to sit and breathe. Breathing, just lowering my state. I make better decisions and I can help people make better decisions and help them in a much more informed way to do that. So, you know, being able to focus on all those body-based stuff, it's not about going and eating falafel and hugging trees, which are excellent things to do, by the way. Um, But I think one of the things that we just need to move towards is being able to think about our impulse control. And when you've experienced trauma, of course, what we know is that accessing that impulse control is very difficult because there's so much that you have to suppress and sit on that it's really difficult to exercise. Um, so yeah, I totally agree. I think it is an issue. Um, and I think, you know, being able to sit with curiosity and vulnerability at a young age and teaching that is, is really key. So that's a hope I have for the future as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And that, and this is the parent's role as well, not to, uh, you talk about pacifying ourselves with these devices, uh, such as porn or gaming or food or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. But if you were to bring it right back to the grassroots, bring right back to childhood, you know, a, a difficult child, maybe give them the iPad to help them calm down or sit them from the TV. You can watch that. That'll keep you quiet. Or here's a lollipop. That'll keep you quiet or that'll send you down. So, we almost become conditioned that this is the way we need to deal with feeling stressed or anxious or depressed or sad or angry. It's like, okay, I need something to help me feel better.
1: I totally agree. And and what people think about is they go, oh, okay, they can't self-regulate. So I need to give them to self something to self-regulate like an iPad, food, all of those things. But of course, what we learn is that they then use that to regulate. So they're not self-regulating at all. They're regulating with what you've just given them. So it therefore doesn't actually meet the need, you <laughs> know. So when we when we actually break it down, of course, those things are obvious. But you know, I do understand the need sometimes. You know, we've all done it. We've all given our kids something for 10 minutes just whilst we're busy doing something or sort of problem out. That's that's completely different. When you're talking about doing it regularly, though, that's where things get into problematic areas. So one of the things that I often talk to parents and carers about is, you know, you are the biggest influence on your child's regulation. You know, when they become distressed or they feel unable to regulate, their relationship with you is absolutely the thing that they need—not just to feel safe and to feel connected, one of those things, but to be able to then effectively self-regulate. Um, and I think the problem is, is we became sort of obsessed years ago with a sort of super nanny approach of, you know, chucking them in the room and isolate themselves, and and you know they'll be alright and they'll cry out. And of course, you know, we, we've all moved on in in our understanding, but the problem is culturally, you know, like you said at the start. That type of approach of seeking connection and supporting your child with those things is sometimes seen as you know being slack or you know being um being weak. You ask any of the kids I work with, they will tell you two things. They'll tell you, oh, I'll always listen and I'll always help them when I can, but they will tell you that I'm really, really strict and my boundaries are really firm. This this myth that uh, you know you can't be, you know, open and, and and available to your child as well as being really firm in your boundaries is is ridiculous. Um, you know, a lot of the kids that I work with will tell you that I'm always on their case all the time, um, you know, making sure that they're doing X, Y and Z and getting them in the right place at the right time. But when they need it, I'll also be there and also won't judge them. You know, I'll help them all of those things. So it's this stupid argument that people get into, I think, where they go, well, you can't be one or the other. But the reality is, it's great. And it's the middle, it's the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a bit of both every now and again.
0: Yeah, of course, because otherwise you're leaving a, a child to make make their own decisions and choices, which they're not ultimately capable to do at a younger age. And they need that guidance, need that discipline and that uh, and that strictness from yourself in order to keep them in line and make sure that they're understanding the value of work or understanding the value of discipline or um, commitment or showing up or doing something that's actually, to them, is, is uh, perhaps a pain. But you understand it for something more than that, understanding that this is something that will add value to their lives. That's going to therefore uh, be quite valuable for their lives as they move forward. Uh, because if you give them free rein, yeah, they're going to take advantage. They're going to uh, overstep the boundaries. Well, there are no boundaries to overstep. So you've got to set those boundaries. So, I mean, that's the dif- difference. Nice. That. And then they take that with them when they leave home and they behave in the same way in the, in the classroom with the teachers on the playground and life in general and it can become quite problematic which i'm sure you have experienced and as i mentioned when you break it all down it does come back to early childhood and and the parents influence doesn't it like isn't like 99 percent of those issues you deal with does it go right back to to the beginning
1: A lot of the time, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. It it does. And I think sometimes, um, you know, I should also be, be clear, you can, you can turn around and acknowledge something that was difficult, but not necessarily have to blame people for it. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that I find is that, you know, when I reflect back on my childhood, there are moments, undoubtedly, where my parents didn't do the right thing, where things, you know, where I have things that I need to process around those things. But I don't, I don't need to necessarily blame them or hold them accountable for that. It's just something I need to move up. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some things that absolutely you, you should try and hold people accountable to if you need to do that. No problem. But I think sometimes, you know, people think they're looking back and looking back at those areas means that you have to have a vendetta against those people that brought you up. And that's not necessarily true. Um, You know, a lot of the time, things look different in a different light, don't they? If you look at things differently, you see something differently. And I think... A lot of the time people are back at their childhood, you know, once their parents or once they're older and go, wow, yeah, no, they really weren't perfect human beings that I thought they were when, when with children. Um, my grandparents are massively influential on me. Um they were they were really significant. And uh I one of the things that really struck me, so I lost my grandmother last year. Um and I It was really weird because I knew that she was going to pass and, you know, she had dementia and all of those things. Um, But what really struck me when she died was I didn't really appreciate. It's not that I didn't appreciate what I had. I had a great relationship with her and I was very close and I knew that she was special. But I didn't quite understand the influence that she had on me daily because she was always so constant. Because I never had to question it. She was always there. So I never... I never really processed, <laughs> or stopped to contemplate how integral she was because she was always just present. So I didn't actually have to do much thinking about the relationship at all. And so, you know, when we when we talk about, you know, going back to childhood and how things play out and the effects that things have on us, sometimes the problem is is that it takes something to happen in adulthood before you then reflect back, and that's understandable and that's fine. But I think one of the things that we need to do is I personally have always said that we should have a certain point in our lives where we're able with somebody, it doesn't need to be a therapist, it can be with um somebody that knew us maybe when we were younger, that we look up to one of those things and be able to sit down and go, I need to ask you some questions about. What happened when i grew up because those lines are blurred my memories merge into one when we experience trauma it's you know very very easy for people to say well you've made that up but the reality is our brains trying to clutch a bits of information and put them together in different ways which is not necessarily the truth emerging but it's some version of events we can hold on to so it's not done purposely in that way so if we could sit down with somebody and sort of say i've got questions and i need some answers or i need somebody to help me piece these things together. Wouldn't that be brilliant for everybody to be able to do? But we don't place emphasis on it enough because we assume that when you're 18, you know, your childhood has been great and therefore you're now an adult and you've just got to get on with it and you're meant to have those skills. Whereas you and I both know, I certainly was an adult at the age of 18, I was far from it. Um, I was a nightmare all the way through school. I was horrendous. And the reality is those things made me better at my job in the long term. But I had to do a lot of work before I got there. Um, And I had to do a lot of looking back. Some of that looking back is painful. But if we don't acknowledge it um, and we don't make those links, then it means that we are continuously seeking this narrative of, well, why am I feeling the way that I am? Or why am I doing the things that I do? Mm. Unless we're able to help people make those links, then they're going to have a lot of those questions going forward, aren't they? So for me, it's, you know, yes, it is painful. There's no doubt about it. But it also means that, you know, it brings with it a really useful narrative that means we don't necessarily need labels. Mm-hmm. We can look back and go, okay, I, I experienced that. Therefore, you know, these are the things that I need to be aware of in my adult life.
0: Yeah. I often use the term that you you have to go back in order to move forward. So, and it's uh, like, for me as well, and I think for a lot of guys out there, um, they blame themselves for, their own problems or afflictions um certainly that was my case um i wouldn't have i I was quite hesitant perhaps to look at my relationship with my parents or look at them as individuals and understand the choices they made perhaps i know they're perhaps doing the best they they thought they're doing the best they could for me but maybe that wasn't the best for me at the time um and of course i don't hold any blame or um, you know, there's nothing like that. I'm just trying to understand the situations and understand me for who I am. And but for a long time, I'd blame myself for a lot of a lot of what I went through and how I felt. And there's one thing that sticks out there on your on your Twitter. Uh, you've got it up as a as a cover photo or a quote, but you seem to be big on compassion, which is something that I feel. I massively lack, certainly lacked. Maybe I'm getting moving a little bit closer towards that, but I think that a lot of guys uh, struggle with feeling compassionate for themselves. It's uh, that's a, a massive barrier, I feel. Um, and why, like, obviously, that's something you're you're quite passionate about compassion. So it's is that is that the point you need to get to in order to ultimately? move forward from your afflictions is to feel compassion for yourself or is that just part of the process is that like the ultimate goal
1: i mean i'll I'll let you know when i get there um (laughs) but yeah no absolutely um it's definitely important i think going back to what you said earlier it's about our perception of words isn't it like compassion seems a very feminine concept a lot of the time because that's often where a lot of our influences have come from when we talk about who's modeled compassion to us um but you know i tend to explain that my grandfather was a massively compassionate person he was a police officer he was you know very masculine all of those different things but he was the kindest person i knew and compassion isn't always um about you know hugging and all of those things that we typically think it to be i think we need to redefine that almost and often my grandfather was just very accepting of people um and he also needs to extend a lot of compassion towards himself. He was adopted, um, so you know he had his own issues with his own narrative and his own life. Um, but you're right, extending compassion to ourselves is is a really courageous act, but it's also an essential one because one of the things that people think is is quite self indulgent. Well, in actual fact, you know we've all there are people that depend on us, aren't there? In our relationships and our lives daily, whether it's professional or personal, and ultimately, you know we are because we're in relationships with them not just romantically, but, you know, um, in terms of uh, children, friends, all of those things. We're, we're intertwined. So my well-being and my, how I feel, is completely intertwined with yours because I'm going to affect you and you're going to affect me. That's that's the nature of relationships. So it's not a self-indulgent act. It's an essential one. It's really important. One thing I'd say about compassion is that um, it's not an easy choice. Sometimes it can be really hard to be compassionate for people, like really hard. Um, you know, sometimes people have, you know, I've behaved in certain ways um, that I'm really, really ashamed of, and it can be really hard to extend that compassion to myself because I'm just full of self-loathing and all of those things. Um, and similarly, when people behave in the same way, you know, having compassion doesn't necessarily mean that you allow things to go. Um, there have been people that have treated me in certain ways that, you know, I would say hello to them now, but I don't. I wouldn't necessarily have kept them in my life because I'm trying to be compassionate towards myself. So. You know we can see that it's a big contradiction a lot of the time isn't it it doesn't necessarily mean the the wadi concept that we think it does um i just believe that if we all had a little bit more compassion and that can often just be placed in the area of i'm not going to judge that person by their actions i'm going to ask the question why and why they behave that way or maybe what i can do to uncover that with them or or help them um still or still be their friend or support them <clears throat> despite them behaving the way they are at the moment um I wonder if things would be very different. And I'm quite sure it would. So for me, compassion is essential. And if it's one thing I've seen from NHS colleagues this year who are all health service colleagues around the world have just been under enormous pressure. And compassionate acts are something like just being able to hand somebody a sweet. Like, you know, when they know they haven't had lunch or something or, you know, just thinking of somebody, somebody the other day for no reason whatsoever just message me um because I had a terrible again to my phone. I'm like the worst person in the world. And the reason being, and I always explain this to my friends, I have to prioritize who I'm gonna to have to speak to each day because a lot of the time is taken up by lots of different things happening and across work is very busy. So I don't I don't use that as an excuse. It's not a good enough excuse, but it is a reason. And I had somebody message me the other day who messaged me four months ago. And I haven't responded to them and and just went, hey, you know, I'm just just nudging you to, you know, I'd love to be able to see you. I really understand, though, that you're really busy at the moment, um, but I'd love to just see how you are. Um, and that, for me, was just like, oh, my God, they get it and they know that I'm really busy and I'm not ignoring them. And so there's a reason that they're also able to hold me to account compassionately as well and go, hang on a minute. Like sending that four four months ago, mate, like sort your life out. So it it it's those little things to everyday life. And I think people sometimes will be surprised when they take a look at themselves and reflect of how actually compassionate they are. You you threw that phrase in earlier, you know, actually it's something that you know you're aware of and that you maybe feel that you have to work on. And I'm not saying that's not true. You know, you know yourself better than I do, but I'd also suggest that maybe there are ways, just you know, by having this conversation or being open to certain concepts, that would maybe evidence or suggest that you're more compassionate than you think, um, and just knowing that we have the capacity to do that, um, mm-hmm. I think, is really, really key.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's if if you were to link it up, it's it's understanding mm-hmm. and being willing to understand and listen to someone and not judge them for their actions or behaviours, but understand that there's other elements beyond that action that um that they're struggling with and that's kind of created this anger or sadness or um yeah so or their afflictions. and like for me it's like to establish a connection for me it's the willingness to understand someone and try and meet them on their level and not to be not to be judgmental and you can then connect with this person who's not going to be critical of you and who gets you um and you can be accepted. You know, acceptance, I think, is a huge thing as well. So, uh, and again, these are all things that I've struggled with um, all my life. And I'm only starting to realize the impact of it now, uh, the impact of not having that understanding or acceptance or connection or, yeah, you're doing great, but you can always do better. It's like, OK, this is my fault because I'm not doing better. Um, and uh, you know, that's been something that's been following me around for a long time in my life. So it's it's a heavy weight to carry. And it can drag you down, very much so.
1: Totally agree. I think one of the things I mean, firstly I suggest that, you know, you are quite compassionate because you didn't judge me on my haircut. Um, that's one thing to take away. But I'd I'd also say that <laughs> so self done. Um the, the other thing I'd say is that I I really believe that acceptance is really really important and when you don't get accepted for who you are or the version of yourself that you're presenting at that time and I'm not saying we should always accept everything you know in in people's behaviors for sure but when you're not just validated fundamentally I mean how do you move forward from that I mean if you if you're not just accepted the way you show up every day in the world um that's so fundamental to who we are isn't it and and everything else stems from that so you know whether it's you know, people always think about identity to mean, you know, sexuality, gender, all of those things. But identity is so much more than that. It's, you know, what we believe, you know, where we were born, um, all of those things. I always have this really weird thing where um, when I go to different places, I feel really at home in them like, to, to the point where it's like weird. Um, and I think that's because, you know, the place I did grow up in are associated with lots of different things I find it difficult to go back to. So I don't call it home. So you know, it's taken me a long time to understand that. Um, you know, I could be in the middle of you know Berlin or you know uh, Scotland and go, God, I feel really at home here. But but yeah, I wouldn't go back to the place that I really, I really was home. So you know, of course, when we make those links, we understand it. But you're right. We we have to um, understand and I think appreciate within people that acceptance and um, acceptance of the difficult parts, but also the the good parts of ourselves doesn't always come from other people. And when it doesn't come from other people, it means that we seek it out a lot. And when we seek it out a lot, as we mentioned earlier, that leads to all sorts of problems um, because people will maybe accept you but with different motivations. Um, and of course, the golden nugget is when we find those people that accept us for who we are, who we want to be, um, and also expect accept us despite our faults but also hold us to account for them too. And I think you know that's what the whole conversation has been about, isn't
0: it? Yeah, big time, yeah. And I think the yeah underlying there in terms of the uh, acceptance or the or the need to be accepted for who you are, it's perhaps the rejection of who you are perhaps as you were growing up, and from my own experience, maybe you've experienced it, but I'm sure you've you've dealt with a lot of people who have experienced it in terms of you know the bullying, you know you're a, you're an innocent, naive child being yourself up to a certain point where. Yourself is not accepted here. We don't like you. You're rejected. And then you go into yourself. And for me, almost had to create this whole new persona of myself that um, I carried with me for a long time in my life as well. And not understanding it that, hang on a second, I'm living my life based on a seven-year-old's opinion of me, you know, and uh, I've got to let that go. So I think that's a big thing as well for a lot of guys who've gone through that experience of um, rejection or, bullying even being rejected rejected romantically you know you're not good enough to be with me and so there's a there's a lot there to change your perspective on and see for what it really is and that is just one person's opinion of you and you're not um you're not defined by what someone else thinks of you You've got to think of yourself oh, you?
1: totally totally bullying is i think one of the one of the issues that we really haven't got to grips with um and affects more men than than i think anything else than i see 99.9 percent of the time when i when I speak to people in lots of different environments they all have some experience it might not necessarily be you know one over a period of years but it will be an experience that has affected them um i i mean i have to admit we talk about compassion it's maybe a bit of a contradiction here um you know when when i was leading certain schools, I really had no patience for bullying. I mean, you know, my, my deputy used to joke to me that, you know, the kid could set fire to the place and I'd be understanding and compassionate and, you know, not not want to exclude them, but somebody bullied somebody and I would just be livid because I can't bear watching people be victimised for who they are or all of those things. Um, and I just can't do it. And even now, and it's not because I have any experience myself, you know, I was very fortunate in that I don't, but I just can't deal with it. And if I see it happen, um, I, you know, I will just go in without any consequence. When I say go in, I don't mean, you know, raging and, but I will open my mouth very quickly. And um, it's led me into all sorts of problems. But I think that bullying and invalidation in that element is really, really important because you're right, we do, we do live our lives a lot of the time in adulthood by, you know, something that was said when we were seven or eight, but it sticks with us because again, nobody was there to counter that narrative um, and, and help us build, you know, our to that. I disagree with people all the time. Like I I, I always joke to, I, you know, some of the stuff I will say in this conversation, people will disagree with. And I and I think if you come at it from a point of view of, I'm going to say something, but I'm also open to listening to what you're going to say, doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. And it doesn't mean that we're going to be best buddies. But it doesn't also mean we're going to be sworn enemies. Um I think it's just what we need more, isn't it? Everything's a binary. Um and actually we need a lot more people in the middle going, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's different viewpoints and that's all right. I, st- I still I still don't hate you and I still, you know, want to listen to what you say. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it's a bigger problem. But bullying for men, I think is really full and fuels a lot of their shame. Um, because you know, it's one of the most demasculizing things, isn't it? Um to, you know, to be a victim of something and, and to feel um that you had no power and it's a really big power imbalance bullying. Um and and to feel constantly threatened, you know, really shows up in different ways for people.
0: hmm Yeah. Powerless. Yeah, for sure. Being controlled by someone else's opinion of you. And not only being in control, but being being threatened if you don't behave in a certain way. If you don't be yourself, you have to be somebody else in order to fit in. So Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, Some massively valuable points there. And just to wrap it up, if someone is in a situation where they're feeling stuck at the moment, maybe uh, quite anxious, depressed, just not themselves, what's the first step or what is a couple of nuggets you can give them in order to help them move forward from that sticky position?
1: Sure. Um, I'm really glad you asked that because I'm, I'm always aware that, you know, we always talk about these things theoretically, don't we, and say, you know, think about this, think about that. But sometimes people need something practical. So, you know, one of the things that I say is, is that people are feeling elements of despair already struggling. Um, they should they should try and make something which is called a safety plan. Um, and a safety plan is is something that I'm very passionate about. And if you go onto a website called um, you'll find a safety plan on there. And it's basically something that when things get quite dark, things get quite difficult, you you essentially think about how you could buy yourself more time and how you could support yourself in in allowing those thoughts to pass. What things you might need in those moments? What are those things? I have one. Everyone I work with have have one, and I always say to people, it's really about. It's almost like get putting your seatbelt on, you know, before you get in the car. It's being able to make sure that actually, you know, when difficult times come, we've got something there for us. So it's always a good idea to do that. I'd also say that you know, if. If you're trying to seek out a conversation, one of the things that I often say to people is that a lot of people maybe go and talk to their doctor or a lot of people go and talk to their mates or, you know, whatever it is. A lot of the time I spend planning what some of those conversations. So I actually write a lot of sort of pre um typed messages for people with them. I um, you know, <laughs> just pick up their phone and write a message. Um, but you know, we construct some of those messages, you know, so if they are going to reach out, they've got something that they don't need to necessarily think about because we've already constructed it. So that's a really useful thing to do. Um, I also do things, you know, if people are going to go to the doctor or say, you know, look, I'm really struggling with this, or um, I will do the same. So I'll write down on their phone or a note or something saying, okay, what do you want to speak to them about, what are the things you want to do, because often we get in there, don't we, and we sort of just clam up because it's so overwhelming, so a lot of the time I say to them, look, just hand the phone, or just read off it, or just show them, um, because you know then it means that you don't have to talk and they know what's going on. You don't have to say that loud, and they can then come back with with some solutions and support you. Um, so often the work is, I think we tell people to reach out, but we forget about the piece of work that he's doing beforehand. So those are all things that I would certainly think about doing. Think about what you're going to say, you know, how you're going to say it. Can you get somebody to help you with that and construct with that? Um, Because it it takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of, you know, fear-based, isn't it, to be able to do that. Um, And just knowing what words you're going to use seems so simple and fundamental, but you can't do much else if you're tongue-tied, can you, because you're so fearful. So getting some certainty is definitely a good idea.
0: Brilliant, yeah. So lean lean on support as well, yeah. Have someone there to support you, yeah. So, Mike? brilliant my man and uh, I will add that website in the show notes as well that sounds uh, pretty powerful so I'll add that in there and for anyone listening where can they find you if they want to reach out or get in touch with you let them know
1: yeah sure I am on Twitter is where I spend most of my life um, I uh, am at Mike Armager and uh, yeah if you can spell my surname you, you, you might be able to find me
0: yeah I'll <laughs> add that in the show notes too for sure yeah so Twitter yeah and you've got a We've got a couple of links there as well. So I'll, I'll check it out, check them out. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for your time. It's been uh, an epic conversation. Much appreciated. My pleasure.
1: Thank you, Mike.